economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of reading Melody Baker. I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is my friend Iro Hino. Iro is a professor of political science in the Faculty of Political Science and Economics at Waseda University in Tokyo, Japan. His main work is on electoral behavior and party politics in Western Europe, on which he has published many articles and books, including New Challenger Parties in Western Europe, a comparative analysis, which was published by Routledge in 2012. More recently, he has also been working on populism in Japan, which will be the topic of our conversation today. Welcome to the podcast, Iro. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? Well, it's going to be the first and ultimate sports team that I ever supported. It's a baseball team called Yokohama Baystars. This team was called Yokohama Whales in my childhood. So I actually feel more comfortable in identifying myself with a Wales fan, but I know that this sounds a bit weird or not even politically correct to support a team for catching whales. <laughs> um, supporting this team is like, you know, waiting for a miracle to happen. As last time that it won the championship was in 1998, and the one before 1998 was in 1960. So there's a 38 years of cycle, which happens to be the same cycle that Liberal Democratic Party of Japan went into the opposition in 1993, <laughs> after 38 years since the formation of the party in 1955. So that's a coincidental link to this uh, politics. <laughs> It sounds like the Japanese uh, cups in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. So, Seka, what's your favorite political song? Well, it's going to be R.E.M., World Leader Pretend. Well, that always does well, of course, when you're in Athens, Georgia. Oh, right. R.E.M. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's very true. And then finally, what's your favorite political book? Oh, forgive me for being an academic here, but it would be The Silent Revolution by the late Ronald Inglehart, who unfortunately passed away recently. Inglehart's claim was that society changes gradually by generational replacements as new generations embrace new types of values being socialized in a different environment. I like a bit of a paradox in the work of Ronald Inglehart, starting with the title Silent and Revolution. You know, they don't usually go together, right? Mm -hmm. As uh, we normally associate revolution with something violent and loud. Also, Ingrahat may not have appreciated this initially as much as in more recent years, but his theory applies not only to the new left and the rise of green parties, but also to the new right and the rise of radical right parties. As we remark on any challenging behavior of new generations still speaks to the politics of today including authoritarian values and populism, although he tended to disagree with such a claim in the earlier years. And I think he left a big foundation for us. Absolutely. So Japan is often described as an extremely homogenous and hierarchical society, which is believed to be influenced by Confucianism, which teaches respect for elders. This doesn't seem like a good breeding ground for populism. Is there populism in Japan? And if so, can you give a short history of populist politics in Japan? It is true that there are some commentaries saying that there is no populism in Japan and asking why populism isn't absent in the country. But my take is the other way around. It looks absent now because it has been around for some time and has ended its cycle. Let me tell you why. 
To a surprise, it may seem for some people, but populism has been a part of Japanese politics way before the world realized that populism is on the rise in the global scale. The most notable populist politician is Junichiro Koizumi, who was the prime minister from 2001 to 2006. The more recent example can be Toru Hashimoto, who was the governor of Osaka and the mayor of Osaka City from 2008 to 2015. Both adapted the political styles of making enemies and blaming them on behalf of the people that they claim to represent. They were both good at talking to the people. They don't beat about Bush and say things in a straightforward manner with some sound bites. The exemplary story about making enemies was the snap election that Prime Minister Koizumi called for in 2005 after his bill to privatize postal office was rejected by some of his fellow LDP members who deflected from his party's reform policy. He then sent what he called an assassin candidate to the same district where the LDP member who opposed the bill has a seat. It was really the politics of distinguishing us from them in the Manichaean manner, which is one of the elements of populism as Kasumude defined. I don't know who that guy is. <laughs> But anyway, Toru Hashimoto also called for a referendum to set up the Osaka metropolis by abolishing Osaka city by criticizing the civil servants, public school teachers and trade unions. For stopping his institutional reforms and blaming them on the malfunctioning of the public administrations. So in a nutshell, Japan has witnessed a populist head of the executive both at national and local levels in the last two decades. Right. And so within that narrative, how are the people defined and how are the elites defined? Like what are the key features of Japanese populism or are there many different forms? Well, the key issue that Prime Minister Koizumi brought up was the postal reform. This was his flagship agenda for his career, and he proposed to privatize the postal office, which had the gross savings of 340 trillion yen, which is roughly speaking 3.2 trillion US dollars with the exchange rate at that time. Since the postal office in Japan serves as quasi-bank and keeps people's savings, he then criticized bureaucrats for abusing these savings. He even said in the LDP's manifestos in 2005 that it is a paradise of bureaucrats and the savings are the hotbed of wasting people's savings. Koizumi also targeted the government officials for their customs to be hired again at the end of their career in a very high ranking position in a related public organization under the broad umbrella of ministries through what is known as a revolving door or in Japanese amakudari, literally meaning descent from heaven. <laughs> He tried to pass a bill that bans this revolving door custom. So for Koizumi, the elite was the civil servants and central bureaucrats. And he deliberately blamed them for the malfunctioning of the Japanese political economy. In terms of the question, has this changed in time? Yes, the elite used to mean the politicians themselves up to the early 1990s. The Japanese politics was tainted by a series of large-scale financial scandals in the late 1980s and early 1990s. It was then the politicians who were criticized for receiving bribes. As a result, the LDP went into the opposition in the 1993 election, partly due to the party split. So in that regard, politicians were a part of the establishment who were perceived as capitalizing on their prerogatives. Now, Koizumi cleverly shifted the blame to central bureaucrats from politicians themselves and managed to bring public anger and support to his side by criticizing the protective prerogatives that bureaucrats have. So yes, we can say that the meaning of the elite changed over time. 
right? And it's important for non-Japanese that he was the leader of the LDP, which was kind of the hegemonic party of Japan, which explains why it was a little bit difficult to make the politicians as the bad guys in this story, right. given that he was the leader of that main party. Now, if you look at today, the early 21st century, are there important populist players today? And if so, who are they? I would say that populism has evolved rather at the right end of the political spectrum, as Koizumi and Hashimoto are mainly considered as right-wing politicians. That said, populism was also a part of the center-left DPJ's electoral manifesto. The DPJ is the Democratic Party of Japan that defeated the LDP in a 2009 general election by yet again promising that politics should be managed by politicians, not by bureaucrats. This anti-bureaucratic language was widely shared across the political spectrum, from the right wing to the center left, for the entire decade of 2000. It is also important to point out that populism in Japan is pretty much driven by politicians. There are no such populist movements in a strict sense. So to better characterize, it is a supply-side, top-down populism based on politicians' rhetoric and messages, rather than a demand-side and bottom-up populism based on people's movement. Right. Or rather to say, populism in Japan is embedded in electropics. Politicians' messages resonate with public sentiment and anger toward the elitist government officials. But it is also populism without movement, right? There were right. certainly no viable movements against the civil servants on the people's side. I would say the exception to this populism without movement might be a left-wing, arguably populist party called Reiwa Shinsengumi, which gained two seats in the last upper house election in 2019. This party is pretty much based on the movement led by one former upper house member of parliament. So things are gradually happening also at the people's side, but there have been only marginal movement that would strictly qualify populism in Japan. Right. But so it, it is top down, but it is within political parties, right? These are not outsiders like in the Latin American context. This is actually coming out of pretty mainstream parties. Exactly. Populism has generated from within the political party. Right. Now, although Japan is a very homogenous country with very little immigration, there are actually some nativist movements like, and I'm going to butcher this, Zaitokukai. Who are they and what do they stand for? Right. The Zaitokukai is a nativist group that specifically targets Korean minority in Japan. The background of Korean minority in Japan is that there are currently about 300,000 people of Korean origin, although the number is shrinking mainly due to naturalization who remain from the colonial period when Korea was part of Japan for 35 years before the end of the Second World War. Since they themselves or their parents or even older generation held the status of Japanese in the colonial period, they are given a special status of permanent residence as foreigners. Special in a sense, for example, of not having to carry the identity card as foreigners, as opposed to other foreigners with permanent residence, they would have to always carry the ID or being waived from fingerprinting at the border control. But these are all technical things that they are granted by being a, of Korean origin. By the way, it's the same right granted to those Taiwanese who remained in Japan, so it's not just for Koreans. The Zaitokai's claim, that I must say rather ungrounded claim, is that those Korean minority are privileged to receive public welfare more easily than Japanese, for example, and they are allowed to use a name other than their own, basically a Japanese name for their social life, which is not allowed for other foreigners, according to them, which is untrue because the use of a common name is also legally granted for all foreigners. 
So they are trying to disseminate a view that Koreans in Japan have a special status and that it is not fair to the Japanese people. Right. It is rather a nativist movement, not really a populist movement since they are not really targeting the elite or the establishment at least until recently. So how relevant are they in Japan? Do they have connections to political parties? The Zaitokai started in 2005, set up by an activist uh, named Makoto Sakurai, and its supporters mainly come from the internet followers. It has been largely fringe movement, but gradually came to be known for their hate speech that they make in demonstrations. They make horrifyingly nasty hate speech on street, but there were no laws in Japan that regulated such hate speech. As a result, a law passed in the parliament in 2016 to keep hate speech under control. The Zaitoka is relevant to an extent that it contributed to making this hate speech law. In terms of their connection to political parties, it does not have any link to existing parties, but Makoto Sakurai set up a party in 2016 called Japan First Party. He then ran for the governor of Tokyo election in that year and came on the fifth, getting 1.7% of the vote. He ran again for the governor of Tokyo election in 2020 and finished yet again on the 5th, but increased his vote share in 2.9%. The party is increasingly criticizing the government and the LDP for their failure to keep the pandemic under control. So it is possible that this movement can be transformed into a populist movement. But right now, it is more of a supply-side message that is adopting more populist rhetoric. But it remains to be seen if it really resonates with the demand-side popular sentiment. Right. Now, when I was doing research for my book, The Far Right Today, I had a very hard time finding much information about Japan. I did see some journalists refer to Tokyo Governor Yuriko Koike, though. Where do you place her? Well, Yuriko Koike is certainly a right-wing politician embracing nationalism and exclusionism to an extent. She's known as the first female defense minister in the first Abe administration in 2006, She's also the first Tokyo governor who refused to send a commemoration ceremony for the masculine of Korean residents in the Tokyo earthquake in 1923. She also withdrew support for a new school for the children of Korean families in Tokyo. She does not really attack people of their other ethnic origins directly in her speech, so this might put Koike in a different light from other far-right leaders. She tends to be much more cautious but from what she did for her policies, she can be identified pretty much on the right with nationalistic and exclusionist inclinations. Right. Now, perhaps the most fascinating organization is the shadowy Nippon Kaigi, or Japan Conference, mm -hmm. which I have seen referred to as a far-right lobby group, as well as the religious cult secretly running Japan. These are both quotes from U.S. media, I must say. Mm -hmm. Who are they and what do they stand for? Well, Nippon Kaigi is a sort of like a far-right lobby group, as you put it, set up in 1997. Initially, it was a merger of two groups, one originated from the mid-1970s and the other one in 1981. They were initially lobbying for legislating a law to keep Gengo, which is Japanese calendar year based on each emperor, as they were worried about the Japanese calendar year traditions would stop when the emperor Hirohito of Showa, a grandfather of the current emperor, passes away when he was becoming older at the time. So it is definitely a pro-emperor group backed up by Shintoist shrines in the country. They also support the conservative agendas of publishing a new history textbook with much revisionist ideology, 
which was a momentum for them in the mid-1990s in reaction to a series of formal apologies that cabinets at the time were making as part of the 50th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. They also support a constitutional amendment to allow the Japanese defense force or de facto Japanese military to play a more proactive role. So yes, it's a bit of, as you put it, a religious cult secretly running Japan, as this group was not really known to the public, not that they were hidden, but the media did not really pay attention to them until quite recently, I think 2014, that they started to report about this group. That was even one or two years after Abe came back in power in 2012. Right. So according to the survey that I conducted with my colleagues after the upper house election in 2019, more than 25% of the Japanese said they strongly believe or somewhat believe that the statement important decisions in this country are basically made up by Nippon Kaigi is true. So yes, clearly it has been perceived as one of those behind the scene group influencing the decision making of the country. Right, because they are not a political party, but they have very close ties to high-ranking politicians, including allegedly to most members of the former Abe cabinet. So how powerful is this organization? It is true that most of the members of the former Abe cabinet are somewhat linked to Nippon Kaigi. It is important, though, to clarify that these ministers are not the members of Nippon Kaigi itself, which has currently over 40,000 members. But most of the ministers are merely the members of the associations of MPs supporting Nippon Kaigi. Talking about this MPs association or club supporting Nippon Kaigi, more than 40% of the MPs in the parliament are the members. So most of conservative-minded MPs join this group. This association is one among many groups which include more than 300 MP groups. There are a bunch of different MPs groups, which range from a group that appreciates, for example, wine tasting together, to other policy-oriented, more serious <laughs> associations. So it's a bit of a social club for MPs. There's certainly an incentive for MPs to join these associations, A, to get to know other colleague MPs, basically networking, and B, they can sell their profile being part of MP association to the voters or to the media when it's really necessary. Right. There's even one MP joining more than 100 of these associations. So in my view, the relevance of Nippon Kaigi is a bit overemphasized. Not all ministers who are committed to the cause of Nippon Kaigi, but it is also true that there are four to five LDP members who have a really close tie with Nippon Kaigi, sometimes themselves being a member of Nippon Kaigi. Right. And so he has been mentioned several times, but how important is former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe here? Was he the spider in the nationalist web, or is he simply the personification of a broader nationalist elite? In other words, how will nationalist groups fare in the post-Abe era? Right. It was a win-win relationship for Abe and Nippon Kaigi. Abe clearly embodied the nationalist ideology. And it worked well for him to advance his personal agenda of collective security bills and constitutional amendment. Abe attends the annual meetings of Nippon Kaigi and often makes speech as a distinguished guest. But it was not that Abe was guru or anything of this whole movement, but he was much of the personification of a broader nationalist elite, as you nicely put it. In the post-Abe era, well, that's also a question when the post-Abe era really comes, as <laughs> Abe is now trying to play a behind-the-scenes role by being a kingmaker. But Nippon Kaigi will continue to keep a strong tie with Abe. 
and they would continue to support a specific candidate, especially in the upper house election where some seats are contested in the open ballot proportional representation. Are nativist and populist groups and ideas contested in Japan? Are the media critical? Is there political opposition to these far-right groups in Japan? There had been so little discussion on these groups until the media started to highlight their relevance. The Zaitokai was largely ignored by the media until 2013, and Nippon Kaigi was not even given a spotlight until 2014. The liberal media had been obviously critical to them, began to feature these groups only recently. In terms of political opposition, an interesting anecdote is that the populist leader in Osaka, Toru Hashimoto, as talked about earlier, was in an intense quarrel with the Daitokai's leader, Makoto Sakurai, in a meeting streamed online, telling that hate speech is not allowed in Osaka. At that time, he told Sakurai to say what he wants to say by being elected by the people. That was a turning point for Sakurai to shift his movement strategy to setting up an own party and run for election. Not so much as the political opposition, but there's also a counter-movement against the Zaitokai called CRAC, which stands for Counter-Racist Action Collective in Japanese, Racist Shibakitai, literally meaning I want to beat them up or I want to beat up the racist, <laughs> which is a left-wing social movement to literally counter the Zaitokai's hate speech demonstrations. Their encounter actually resulted in the arrest of Sakurai himself and some members of this crack in 2013. So yes, there are some reactions and opposition to the Zaitokai in the recent years. Now, are there any developments within Japanese economy or society that make a rise of populism more likely in the future? Obviously, this remains to be seen in the next years to come, but my take is that it is rather unlikely. As discussed, Japan has gone round the cycle of populism already for 20 years in the 1990s and 2000, which was a constant underlining theme of the politics of the past decades. This has already penetrated into the rhetoric and message of the mainstream politicians, and a sort of anti-elite message is no longer new. That said, we may witness a new surge of populism if the nativist movement exemplified by Japan First Party develops into a populist movement by highlighting the privileges that Korean nationals have. But as long as Korean nationals are perceived as minority, and unless nativist movement present them being part of the mainstream in the Japanese society with some conspiracy theories, it may still be、uh, quite unlikely. Obviously, Japan is a very old society, and it will need more young people, or more, let's say, more working people, to sustain the welfare state and the old population. And there has been debate about immigration, right, in Japan. Is it likely that there will be more immigration? Because if there's more immigration, then I assume that that creates an opportunity for groups that are nativist. Right. Japan actually changed the immigration policy. By the way, the government doesn't call it immigration. Immigration as such a word doesn't exist in the legal domain, but they've extended the possibility of foreign neighbors to come into Japan. That was changed in April 2019. So we are yet to see the consequence of changing this immigration policy. So in the coming years, things might change at the societal levels, but this remains to be seen. Who are these immigrants? They mostly are from the region. The government wanted to change this immigration policy to allow foreign labor. Most of them come from Southeast Asian countries. It's not really restricted to that region. 
the same policy applies to everyone coming from outside of Japan. Right. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about populism in Japan? I would say that it's a myth that Japan has escaped from the wave of global populism and Japan is an uncharted territory in the populist map. The story is quite contrary. Japan has experienced a series of populist politics in the last decade since 1990s. As being a democracy that has lasted for a long time since the World War II, it was pretty obvious that Japan reached a point in which the establishment, including politicians and the central bureaucrats, is criticized for the malfunctioning of the political economy. So it was something like the zeitgeist, or the spirit of the age, if you like, of the political mood in the 1990s, that something needs to be changed. So reform has been addressed by every politician ever since. Because of being front-runner of the populist politics, let me put it in that way, and because of populism being already penetrated into the mainstream politics, it looks rather absent nowadays mm. that there's no strong populist party, for example, if we only look at the populist map of today. But if we look at Japan with a sort of like a bird's eye view from the entire past decades, the picture might be different. Right. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Iro. Well, thank you for having me. Iro Hino leaves little trace on social media, so you will have to follow the relevant academic journals to stay up to date on his publications. This was another episode of Radical, the podcast on the radical aspects of music, politics and sports hosted by me, Kas Mudde. The music is from the Godots with their classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. If you want to know more about Radical, visit our website at www.radicalpodcast.com. Radical spelled R-A-D-I-K-A-A-L. And if you like the podcast, please rate and subscribe. Also, please share it with friends and on social media. Thank you for listening. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs and reading Melody Baker. I see him down the bunker, playing with his beard. No wonder that that's capital turned out a little weird.